If you have your Bibles, open them up. We're ready for Matthew 25. If you don't have a Bible, we would like to um, loan you a Bible or like to see you have a Bible. Just raise your hand and Mike in the back will uh, bring you a Bible. Mike, you got Bibles back there? What do you guys remember about Matthew 24 and 25? I'm not a very good teacher if you guys aren't learning anything. You know, I just write it off to the fact that I'm not a great teacher, but that you guys are shy and you just don't want to answer those questions in church. There we go. He wasn't even here last week, but he learned. I taught him well. I taught him proxy. So we are studying a section of Scripture called the Olivet Discourse. This is in the last um, days, hours, minutes of Jesus' life. Jesus is about to die on the cross. As a matter of fact, when you come back next Sunday and we get into Matthew 26, we're going to begin the process of a short period of Jesus' life where he's going to go through the last process of leading him to the cross where he's going to die on Calvary. And just before this moment of death upon the cross, Jesus gathers with the disciples and and he tells the Pharisees as he's fighting with them in in chapter 23, and Jesus finally takes the gloves gloves off and tells the Pharisees as plain as day that if they don't repent and they don't change of their hardness of their hearts, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And he tells the Pharisees that their house will be left unto them desolate. And the the, the disciples understood very clearly that Jesus was saying that the temple in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, the temple that Solomon built, would be left desolate. It was one of the eighth wonders of the world. It, it, It was marvelous. People would travel from all over the world to see it. It was the focal point of culture and society and history of its day. And for the temple to be left desolate in the house of God, the disciples understood clearly that had to mean that Jesus was talking about the end of the world. And so they pull Jesus aside and they give him an opportunity to take back what he said because it was so radical that they said, Jesus, you know, what did you really mean? We're we're off to the side now here. And, And Jesus, where he spent lots of times on the Mount of Olives, sometimes in a specific spot on the Mount of Olives called the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's going to be very shortly... Jesus is there with the disciples, and in this place they ask him a three-part question. What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age, and and how will we know? And Jesus begins in the Olivet Discourse to answer these three things. And little did they know at this time in history, about 32, somewhere in there, by the year A.D. 70, Titus Vespasian and the Roman army would come, and they would surround the city of Jerusalem. They would besiege the city and try to starve it out in a two-year siege. Hundreds of thousands of Jews in Israel would die during the the siege of Titus Vespasian. At the end of the siege, they finally sacked and got all the way to the heart of the city and the heart of Jerusalem, which was the Temple Mount. And and Titus Vespasian himself was was kind of a friend to the Jews. He was was not necessarily, I don't know if you call him a believer, but he believed in the God of the Jews and of the Temple, that it was holy and it was a sacred thing that he didn't want to destroy and harm. And he gave command that nothing should happen to the temple. And as Titus Vespasian was was sacking the city and the Roman army finally came through and sacked Jerusalem in A.D. 70, one of the soldiers fired a a fiery, flaming arrow into the temple, and, and the temple caught fire. 
And, and the temple began to burn, and, and the gold of the temple, because it was covered and inlaid in gold everywhere, it began to melt and, and, and go throughout all the temple and through the stones. When they built the temple, and when Solomon built his temple, God said that there should ne- neither be the sound of hammer or chisel at the site of the holy site. So they built the, the temple that was there in Solomon's day off and quarried it. And when they brought the stones, the massive stones, onto temple site, and they began to fit them together, they fit so precisely that you can't hardly get a credit card in between the stones. The temple was built with no mortar, nothing to hold them together, just precision craftsmanship that was there. And the gold began to melt through the cracks and the crevices, and the Roman soldiers began to throw the stones, one from another, over the top in order to get all of the gold. And, and they sacked the city, and, and exactly what Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon another. And, and as he told the Pharisees, your house will be left desolate unto you. And he teaches about this. He teaches about a very um, common thing that we've been talking about here a lot that's going to happen, something that we most likely will see in our lifetime called the rapture of the church, the, the, the catching away, the being caught up into the air to meet the Lord in the clouds, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Revelation 4, many other places throughout Scripture, that the bride of Christ, the, the, the church that was born in Acts chapter 2, those that are filled with the Holy Spirit, one day when Jesus comes to meet us in the clouds, will be raptured. The rapture will begin a, a period detailed in the book of Revelation in chapter 5 through 19 in great detail, called the tribulation period, a seven-year period of human history where God is going to first remove the bride, the church, and he's going to refocus his energy in the seven, other thing we call it, the time of Jacob's trouble, the 70th week of Daniel. Both of those terms are very Jewish. Jacob is another name for Israel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. The time of Israel's trouble, the 70th week of Daniel. It's all very Jewish, and God is going to remove the Gentile church, the bride, And we're going to a seven-year wedding feast as the bride of Christ to celebrate. And here, while meanwhile, back on earth, the Bible details a seven-year period called the tribulation. The last three and a half called what? The great tribulation because the intensity grows and grows in the last three and a half years or worse than the first three and a half years. And during this time, God is going to um, judge a Christ-rejecting world, and he's going to call people and nation back to himself his chosen people the jews and the jews will be preserved through that and in that god's going to raise up revelation chapter 11 144,000 jewish evangelists that will be preaching the gospel two angels will fly through the sky the bible says proclaiming the everlasting gospel two witnesses will come back most likely moses and elijah and god will place them in the temple in jerusalem and they will be preaching the gospel and they will be given power to shut up the heavens and call down fire and brimstone during this, this, this great tribulation period. And Jesus, in Matthew 24, 25, he's talking about these events, and he's going through them, and he's answering a three-part question. And for the last three weeks, if you haven't been here, you can get the messages online. We've been going through kind of verse by verse, chapter by chapter, the, uh, trying to do our best to fit where and what and Jesus is specifically talking to. Now, as we get into 25, Specifically, the context of 25, same sermon, same location, all of it discourse, but, but a little bit of a shift to where the, the, I think you could, you could be very careful to say that Matthew 25 has the context of be ready. Everybody say be ready. Ready for what? Lunch? 
Where are you guys going for lunch? Home. My house? Come on. Let's eat. So being ready for the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Again, we spent almost an entire Sunday on the idea that the Bible teaches something called the doctrine of eminence. Okay? Not preeminence. Preeminence is taught in the scripture in, in multiple places. But preeminence is a word that means Jesus is preeminent one. He's supreme. He's higher. He's better. He's, he's above every other God. Above everything, Jesus is. Above everything, period, Jesus is preeminent. That's, that's called the doctrine of preeminence. Not to be confused with preeminence is the doctrine of eminency, which means that Jesus could come back at any moment. Do you guys believe that? Okay. There, there are those who don't, and that's okay if you're here and you're a mid or a post-trib guy. And, but, but the problem with mid or post-trib, in my opinion, is humble opinion, of course, is that you, you cannot have this doctrine that the Bible clearly teaches of eminency because certain things have to happen in order for Jesus to come back if your theology says he's not coming back to the middle or the end. The biggest one being... There, there's a, there is a sign that we're in the great tribulation, or not the great, because that's the last three and a half. There's a sign that we're in the tribulation period. The biggest sign that we'll see two things in the very beginning. And first of all, the Bible says that the bride of Christ won't see the revealing of the Antichrist. But the first thing that needs to happen is the Antichrist needs to be revealed and rise and rise to power. Because the Bible says once the Antichrist rises to power, one of, one of the very things he's going to do that is going to mark the seven years and put some parentheses around the seven years is the antichrist is going to anybody know what he's going to do the first thing he's got to do daniel chapter nine he's going to confirm a peace treaty with israel that's going to last seven years and at the three and a half year mark he's going to break the treaty that he that he made and he's going to enter in and jesus said when you see the abomination of desolation which daniel spoke of Jesus said that in Matthew 24. We read that. That's the Antichrist who's going to go into the rebuilt Jerusalem temple that Solomon built on the same exact place on planet Earth, on Mount Moriah, right next to where the Dome of the Rock sits today. He's going to enter in the Jewish, the, 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 the Jewish sacrifices, the law of Moses. The Jews who believe in God but have not received Jesus will continue to try to live life like they did in the Old Testament. The Antichrist will, will make a peace treaty between the Muslims and the Jews to where the Jews will be able to rebuild their temple. And the treaty will last three and a half years. Antichrist at the three and a half year mark will enter into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant resided, and he will, he will set himself up as God and demand that he be worshipped. And Jesus said, when you see these things happen, flee. And the Jews will at that point realize that he's not their Messiah and they've been duped. But, again, my point was, one of the, the things that has to happen, so if you have, again, a, a mid or a post-trib rapture theory, at some point the bride goes up. Okay, there's no arguing that. The Bible teaches that. You, you can't really hold a candle. You can't really argue too successfully that there's not a rapture. No, nobody argues that, that, that believes the Bible. They more argue when it happens. But again, if it, doesn't happen, if it doesn't happen in the beginning, then just relax because until you see a temple being built in Jerusalem, we're not in the tribulation period. Now, there can be a lot of terrible and ominous things happening all over the world. And people like to oftentimes point to those and make suggestions that it's possible that right now we're seeing the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period. And I always point out, 
yes, that, that, that there's lots of ominous things happening. And when you see those, you know, devastating tsunamis in, in, in Asia, you know, and they, they feel like the end of the world, some of the things that happen. But until there's a peace treaty and until there's a temple in Jerusalem where the Jews again continue to do animal sacrifices and worship according to the law of Moses, we're not in the great tribulation. That Mike's got it out for me today. Um, so all that, we haven't even got to verse one yet. So Jesus is saying in, in this section, be ready. That's kind of the context we're in. Now, um, let, let's just look at it real quick. I'm going to read to verse 13. So follow with me if you like. It says, then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, five of them were wise and five were foolish. And those who were foolish took their lamps with no oil with them. Oil in the Bible is a type of what? The Holy Spirit. Everybody say Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Can we say that like we say Jesus? You know, we say Jesus. Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. You know, we anoint you guys with oil. I keep anointing oil up here, right? And if you come up, because the Bible tells us, Paul tells us in Timothy, that if the sick among you to come up and have the elders and the leaders lay hands on them, anoint them with oil and pray a prayer for them that they might receive healing from their sickness. So we anoint people with oil often here. And if you come up for prayer and you ask for healing, I'm probably going to rub some oil on your forehead. And the reason why I'm going to do that and the, the idea of the oil, there's no medicinal power in it. It's nothing special, but it's a representation. Biblically, it's a reminder for us that God's Holy Spirit is. And so we, we see here, whether we make application to it or not, we, we have the idea that the, the foolish virgins have no oil. And it says, but the wise took their oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was de- delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard and behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. And then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, no, lest they should be not enough for us. You go for rather and sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and to those who were ready, went in with him to the wedding, and everybody, the door was shut, Uh uh-oh, and afterward the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said to them, assuredly, I say to you, I do not, what's the next word? Know you. You guys are good. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the, the Son of Man is coming. So you know neither the day or the hour. The context is very clear, right? To you don't know the day or the hour, so watch and pray. Last week we said that that, that this is a warning for us that we want to be a people that have a doctrine of eminence. We want to live our lives in such a way because Jesus said, don't be, when that day comes upon you, you don't want it to come upon you unexpectedly in that you're, you're caught carousing or in drunkenness or in the cares of this world. Now, the my, the pastor and a pastor that I love and respect and you guys don't ever hear me preach a on a passage of scripture that I don't first read and hear and know what this pastor says about it and he says in his commentary on Matthew 25 that, that we as pastors take this section and of these parables and try to use them to scare people into into becoming Christian or scare people into um, following God or follow or being afraid and he's right to the degree of this the, the, the scare tactics, they're not effective. 
They're not. You know, I, I could probably work you guys up a little bit here in the service and, and, and get you a little afraid about ominous things and things coming and you need to be ready for the return of Jesus and, you know, terrible things are going to happen and put a little bit of fear in you. But, but the fear as a motivating factor to us, for us to be Christ followers, it doesn't work. It doesn't last. It, it's, it's, like a, it's like a like a sparkler. You light it and, and eventually it goes out. But the, but, but the factor, the motivator that God gives us in his word for all of you is what? Come on, I'm going home if you don't know this one. It's what? Love, 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 love. It's the love of God. It's that God loves you so much that you want to respond to his love. You want to know his love. It's the love of God that motivates us, that moves us, that drives us. Nothing else works like the love of God in your life to make you a Christ follower. You don't have to go out of here today and do better and be better and, 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 and serve God more. You need to go out of here today and find out a way to love God more and love Jesus more and know Jesus more and talk to Jesus more and hear Jesus' voice more because the more you know Jesus, the more you hear Jesus, the more you relate and fellowship and commune with Jesus, just naturally you're going to do things that God wants you to do. And that's what the Bible teaches. And so, but, but I want to tell you, so we're not motivating you with fear. We're not trying to scare you. But, but Jesus is pretty clear, and I think a healthy fear of God is biblical. And I can't ignore the fact that Jesus said, watch, therefore, and pray that you would escape these things that are coming on a Christ-rejecting world. Jesus said, don't be caught carousing, sleeping with somebody you're not married to. He said, don't be caught in drunkenness. That's, that's English, right? He said, don't be caught with the cares of this world. And then Jesus says, pray that you'd escape these things. And so there is biblically, there's a place for us to have just a real healthy fear of the idea that God could come back at any point and we need to be ready and we want to be ready and we want to have our lives ready. So in this context of these virgins um, who had no oil and 10 went in and 10 didn't go out, there, there's, there's a concept consistent with the rapture here. The, the, the Noah in the Bible, and listen, the Bible is full of them, you guys. One of the reasons why I personally um, am so dogmatic pre-tribulation rapture guy. Now, I want to be careful, right? Because I personally just have a conviction of pre-tribulation rapture. It's my personal conviction. It wasn't always. And, and, it, and it was for a long time because it was my elders and my teachers and my leaders' conviction. And, and at some point, I, I had to make it my own or I couldn't stand by it. I couldn't teach it. And I got to the point as I studied it and unpacked it and really looked into it and spent a lot of time on it that I now have a personal, really strong opinion about it. But listen, I don't, what I want to be careful for in the church is I realize there's other opinions and it's not a separating factor. It's not a dividing factor. Unfortunately, in the church so many times, when we don't agree on all of the doctrine, we, 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 we disfellowship or we, we can't get along, we can't love each other. Somebody can't be a Republican and a Democrat and still love each other and still be friends even though we disagree on politics or we disagree on theology. And I don't want that to be our, uh, have any place here. We love first and we have opinions. And I have to just be true to the opinion that I have. And, and, and I start that to say one of the reasons why I have that strong opinion is, now I forgot what it was. I started talking about this thing. Yeah, I know why and all that. Okay, well, let's just go on. That's the Lord saying, hey, shut up and move on. I told you guys we weren't going to talk about pre, post, mid this week. We are going to move on. So I better move on. So in context here again, the, the door is shut. Oh, that's what it was. Okay, door shut. That's where we were. <laughs> the Bible is full of types and, and idioms. So, for example, a Jewish wedding. God laid out a Jewish wedding. 
And a Jewish wedding, the bride, the, the groom doesn't know when he can go get his bride. And, and the culture of Jewish culture to this day is the, the groom and the young man, he builds an addition on his parents' house, usually on the roof or an addition somewhere. And at some point, his father says to his son, okay, son, today is the day, go get your bride. And it's a surprise for everybody. That's their culture, their custom. It was built in from, from Adam and Eve culturally through the Jewish history. And, and the Bible says that no man knows the day or the hour, but one day the father is going to say to his son, son, go get your bride. It's a perfect picture of the rapture and, of the, and, and, it's, and it's a typology. And so we have these different types all the way throughout the Bible. And as far as I'm concerned, every one of them are really consistent with the pre-tribulation rapture. And you don't want to mess with a typology. One of them is Noah. Noah and the flood is a type of the rapture. And people say, well, Noah went through the rapture. Noah went through the tribulation, didn't he? Because him and his family got on the boat and they had to go through the terrible times. Absolutely. Noah went through. And there is a section, there is a group of people that will go through the seven years. Who are those people? The Jews. The Jews go through it. They, they, they build a temple. They get tricked by Antichrist. Noah and his family represents the Jewish um, people, the nation that goes through but do you know who was, who was a contemporary with Noah and lived at the same time Noah was building a boat? A guy by the name of Enoch. And Enoch walked with God and he was not because what? God took him. So we have this perfect picture of, of a rapture happening and Enoch being taken out before the flood comes and before Noah goes through on the boat. But, but the ominous reality is how, how many ever people lived on planet Earth when the great flood happened in Genesis chapter 6, that nobody believed. Nobody got ready. Nobody came and got on the boat with Noah until God, the Bible says God closed the door. He brought the animals, two by two, of the unclean animals, seven of the clean animals. They loaded the boat. They got ready. They got their supplies. And then the Bible says God closed the door. Do you know how long the door was closed before the rain came? Seven days. God's kind of consistent with this seven. So Noah and his family, what was that like? Sitting on the boat for seven days, no rain? Like, uh-oh, day number two, you're like, okay, Lord. Day number three, you know, you're feeding the animals. It's already starting to stink a little bit on the boat. And day number four, day number five, no rain, nothing happens. And Noah, who for 120 years is a preacher of righteousness, has to wait on, on God to say what he's going to do. But you know what happened on day seven is that it began to rain for the first time on planet Earth. Before that, there was a canopy. There was, the Bible says that the, um, what's the word I'm drawing a blank? The, the firmament, thank you. The firmament let down, which was a canopy, and the water came down. Water rose from the, from the ground. And as water began to hit people's face for the first time in human history, and they had no idea what the idea of rain was, they began to run to the boat, I'm sure. The Bible doesn't say this, but I can only imagine, right, that people would have at that point ran to get to the boat because the water they would see the water rising. And imagine there was a little bit of carnage and maybe a lot of bit of carnage right around where the boat sat on the ground until the water began to pick it up as folks began to run to the boat to try to get in. And, and, and we're not allowed and the door was closed and, and Noah didn't have the opportunity to, 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 to get people in the boat. He wasn't as the, the, the blasphemous movie that they made about Hollywood made about Noah where his whole job is to keep people from getting on the boat. And it's so opposite of what the Bible teaches about Noah and about the boat. 
But at that point, as God closed the door, there was no more opportunity for them folks to get on the boat. And here Jesus says with the, the parable of the virgins that, 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 that the bridegroom closed the door, but they came to the door and they had no access to get in. But listen to the criteria. I want you to catch this. Super important. We're going to move on to the next one. Um, the door was shut. Look at verse 12. And he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I don't know you. What was the criteria for them getting in or being left out? It was relationship. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, a group of people come to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We did miracles in your name. We, we fed the poor in your name. We clothed the, the naked in your name. We gave drink to those that were thirsty in your name. And, and, and it says that he, he says, on that day, I'm going to say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never, what? Knew you. And so we get this context over and over again. That, that the idea is that God wants to know you intimately and personally. And the criteria that he lays out is not the good works. These people did lots of good works. But they did them in, in a false name of Jesus because he didn't know them. They didn't have intimacy and relationship and personal revelation and being born again of the Spirit of God. And Jesus says multiple times through the, test, the New Testament, depart from me. The scariest thing anybody will ever hear in human history are these words, depart from me, I never knew you. The door is closed because if you depart, if he says depart from me, I never knew you, for all of eternity you'll be separated from the presence of God. And that's the definition of hell. But, but again... The, the context is, is relationship. The context is knowledge of him personally. Do you know him today? Do you know the Lord today? And if you don't, I encourage you to know the Lord today. I encourage you to ask him in your heart to forgive you of your sins, to be your Lord and Savior, to, to focus on the one thing that God says matters, which is your personal relationship with him. You don't have to worry about being a better person. You don't have to worry about stop believing what you believe. You don't have to worry about stop doing what you like to do that you feel is outside the, the will of God. You don't have to worry about any of that. You have to simply know Jesus. And here's what I want to tell you. If you know Jesus and if you ask him in your life, you ask him in your heart, he's probably just naturally going to change some things in your life. And you don't have to give them up. You don't have to feel like he's going to take them and you're going to be miserable. You may get to a point in your life in a year, in a month, in six months where, where you, you don't do some of the things you used to do that you were holding on to. And someone says, hey, you know, you, you, why aren't you doing those things anymore? And it's not like, oh, I had to give them up because I'm a Christian now. Poor me. I follow Jesus and he doesn't like that stuff. It won't be that way at all. Hey, I, I just, I don't know. I just don't want to do those things anymore. I just like hanging out with Jesus now. and I like going to church. I like reading the Bible and I just... Not that I can't do those things. Well, come on, you could be a Christian and do these things. Yeah, I know. That's cool. I could be a Christian and do those things. I just don't want to do them anymore. And that's the natural way that God works in our hearts and lives. And that's why, again, the, the context and the preaching and the, the message has to be for all of us. Listen, we've got to love Jesus more. You've got to know Jesus. You've got to know him personally. You've got to ask him in. You have direct access. Not one person on planet Earth has greater access to God than you do perfectly and personally. Get alone with him. Get together with him. Talk to him. Pray. Read his word. You know, I talked to a dear woman today, and her kids were going through an envy or situation. My heart broke for her. And she said, I've been crying out to God, and God has been silent. And as gently and as lovingly as I, as I could, I said, you're a liar. I didn't say that. But I, I, I wanted to tell her that's not true. 
God is not silent. If you're seeking God, the Bible says if you seek God with your whole heart, you're going to find him. And don't tell me God is silent if your Bible is closed. If your Bible's closed, then, then, then you, you, God's not silent. You haven't opened your word. You're not listening. God speaks through his word. He speaks to your heart. He speaks clearly. And if you want God to speak to you, get alone with the word. Get alone with Jesus and let God speak to your heart. Because the essence of all of this stuff and being ready is knowing him. Now, I've I got to get to this next section or we're, we're, we're going to kind of miss the whole point of this whole thing. Because I think in context here, we have um, the first 13 verses parable about these 10 virgins. And Jesus says at the end of it, be ready. And I think the natural question that rise for all of us, wouldn't it? How do I then get ready? Like, I want to make sure I'm ready. How do I know I'm ready? And what can I do to be ready for the soon, the imminent return of Jesus Christ? How can I be like the, the, the wise virgins who had oil in their lamps? And I think Jesus understands that, and he gives us very powerfully in context this next parable. And it says, um, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered them as goods and to them. And one he gave five talents, and to another two, and another one. And each one according to his ability, and immediately he went on a journey. And he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. And his Lord said to them, well done, good and faithful servant. You were, you were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Every one of you want to hear that. And he also went and received two talents and came and said, Lord, you, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents. And he said to him, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have, done, you have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And then he who had received one talent came and said, Lord, I know you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. And look, there you, there you have what is yours. But his Lord said to him, you wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten. That's not fair. Tough. Life's not fair. For to everyone who has more will be given and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And listen, cast the unprofitable servant in outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, scary situation for him. So we have the par- parable of the talents, we call it. Now, talent is not that I can uh, sing and dance. Obviously not very well, right? But um, it's not how well I can play the piano. A talent is a, a weight of measure, and it was the largest weight on the Roman scale. A talent could have been as much as 100 pounds, 75 pounds to 110 pounds I, I read. And, and it could be gold, it could be silver, it could be precious metal, it could be something. If it was gold, and if, even if it was gold at 75 pounds, it would be equivalent today of a lifetime worth of salary. Whatever you would make your entire life. It was a lot of money that he left. The guy that got five, and the guy that got two, and the guy that got one. 
And, and so the, the, the talent was a measure of money, and then the master went away. And, and, and when he came back, he based his criteria on the same thing on all three. But in order to be ready, these servants had to be doing the will of the master. They had to be out working and serving God and building and making the kingdom of God grow. And so I think in the lesson of being ready, part of how do you be ready for the return of Jesus Christ, you keep yourself busy building the kingdom of God. You keep yourself busy doing the things that, that God wants you to do, and, the, and you give the gifts and the talents that God has given you back to Him, and you use them in your service. And, and again, just like naturally coming to know Jesus first can change how we live in a, in a natural way, if we just naturally serve God and we bring Him our talents and our gifts, it purifies how we live. And are you going to be doing what Jesus warned against, carousing and drunkenness and cares of this world? If you're serving God with your money, with your time, with your energy, and you're using your life to be a servant of God, you're, you're naturally going to be busy. You're naturally going to be doing the things that God wants you to do, which is going to keep you out of trouble and, and help you be prepared for the coming soon, imminent coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? And so Jesus here is giving a parable that for every one of you, there is an expectation. He said, I give to each one according to their ability. So to Billy Graham, he put Billy Graham in front of millions and millions of people in his lifetime to preach the gospel to him. So you think, oh my gosh, Billy Graham's, you know, he, he, he's going to be rewarded because he got to preach to millions. And, and who am I? You know, I'll never get to do that. But Billy Graham got to preach to millions according to his ability. But when the master came back, he had no criteria on what they did other than one criteria. This is how God judges every one of you. Anybody know what it is? It's required of a servant that he be found faithful. Listen, it's faithfulness. You notice he didn't say, well done, thou good and brilliant servant. Well done, thou good and creative servant. Well done, thou good and talented servant. He said, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Paul tells us very clearly, tells us in the epistles, it is required of a servant that he be found faithful. So God doesn't expect you to preach to millions like Billy Graham and lower your reward if you don't. You could preach to nobody your whole life and have the same exact reward that Billy Graham has. I promise you, every one of you has the same potential in God to have the same reward that Billy Graham or Greg Laurie or Mother Teresa or anybody else in heaven has. My reward is not based on the fact that, that I get to preach and share the gospel or do things that are, you know, uh, be a staff pastor. It has nothing to do with that. You, you could be called to be a mailman and serve in the nursery and have much, much greater reward than me or anybody else because God's not going to base our reward on what we were called to do. God's going to base our reward on... It's almost time to go. We've got to get this and we can go home. God's reward is based on... It's how faithful you were to the call that God gave you, that you took the talents and the gifts that God gave you and you used them for his glory. And you didn't become like the unwise, unprofitable servant who took his talent and buried it in the ground. And then when the Lord came back, he said, well, I knew you were a hard man. You know, that would be like the servant when you, you, you know, like, well, God, you don't need me. You're God of heaven. You can do it all by yourself. What am I going to do for you? I have no gifts, talents. And sometimes we use excuses. We become like that unprofitable servant. I want to tell you, every one of you have gifts and talents you can use for the Lord. Anybody know how to change a diaper? Don't tell me you don't have a gift or a talent. Nate Dog's going to teach you if you don't know how. He raised his hand big. He can change a diaper. You now have a gift or a talent for the Lord. Go use it for God. 
You can, you, can, you can serve the Lord if that's what's in your heart. You have enough gifts and talents, and God has given to you. And I want to tell you something else that happens. And I heard a preacher say this, and I think it's just so true and so powerful. The more you step out with the little bit that you've given, God will expand it. God will grow it. If you take the talent and the gift that you have and you say, oh, I'm nobody, I can't use it for nothing, I can't do anything for the Lord, then it shrinks. But if you step out in God, you step out in opportunity, you step out in ministry, you step out in doing things that God has called you to do, those will grow. Amen? Amen. All right. We're going to have Rob come up close us in a song. We, we didn't cover our last section, and I'm terrible because I, was, I needed to cover the last section. So I guess we'll pick it up next week in the beginning part. Um, it's the three judgments of um, that we find in the Bible. And I'll just give you kind of a spoiler alert. The, the seat judgment is for believers. Everybody say believers. The great white throne judgment is for non-believers. Everybody say non-believers. And the, and the one we'll study next week at the end of 25 is for um, the goats and the sheep, which is at the end of the, or the beginning of the millennial period. Everybody say millennial. So those are the three judgments you'll see in the Bible. Bema seat judgment. That's for believers. That's where you and I are given rewards. It's not a salvation. You've already received salvation. You're saved. You're going to heaven, and you're given a reward. The great white throne judgment, if you're a believer in Christ, you won't be there because everybody who attends the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, will not go to heaven. And then the last judgment that we see biblically as we try to make lines between what's going on is the one we're going to study next week at the end of Matthew 25, the sheep and the goat. And we'll make sense of that one next week. Amen? Amen. Let's together. key you guys it really is the key it's the key of uh again of all my passion and teaching is you know what, what i pray for you guys every time i gotta preach every time and you, you might think that I'm really comfortable up here or i get comfortable but that's not oh i'm really nervous up here and, and i'm afraid all the time i gotta get up and um part, part of my fear is just i, I don't want to do it alone and and my ministry and my life changed when 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 jesus told me listen i'm right next to you i'm standing right next to you and, and, and if I know that Jesus is standing next to me, I can do all things through Christ. I know that I can, because it's not about me, and I've got to try to get out of the way each Sunday and, and need the, the moving and the power of the God's Holy Spirit in our lives and your lives and in the preaching. And everything that I do is, you know, asking God to be with me, asking God to help me show you guys Jesus. That's all I want to do. I don't want to be right. I don't care about being perfect. I don't care about having great doctrine. I don't care if my pre-tribulation theory is right or wrong. None of that matters. I could care less. I, I have a certain conviction. But what I care about is showing people Jesus. And I don't ever want anything in the way of being Jesus. Because it's Jesus that can help you. It's that can change your life. It's that loves you and died on the cross. Don't, don't ever elevate your pastor. Don't ever elevate your church, your denomination, our style, our mantra. Always elevate Jesus. It's always all, only and always about Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I, I got bad news for you guys. Or maybe good news for me. I didn't die on the cross for you. I don't have a heaven or a hell to send you to. What do I got to be proud of? But I got a great God that I get to proclaim his name and point you to. And that's always our vision. And I want to point you to Jesus. That Jesus does have a heaven to send you to. And a hell to, that, that people will go to. And a kingdom 
And Jesus did die on a cross and raise again the third day. And he says that if you'll believe that and receive that, and if you'll get to know him, that the criteria of your salvation not only will change your eternity, it'll change your life. And it's about knowing Jesus. And I want to make sure everybody knows him before they leave today. I want to make sure everybody has opportunity to know Jesus today. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask everyone to pray out loud with me. And listen, this is a a thing we're going to do corporately, but individually, salvation is not a... God's not going to come and take anybody in salvation in a group. He's going to take every one of us individually based on our own personal relationship with him or not. I don't care if your husband, your wife, your mom, your dad, your brothers, sisters are all believers and saved. You're based on your own decision for Jesus. And you have decisions. And if you want to make that decision, you want to say, God, yes, I want you to come into my heart, be my Lord and Savior. It's a matter of the heart. We'll say some words, but really the words are just something to try to put some sense to what's happening in your heart. But if there's a repentance, a desire in your heart, God's going to hear it right now. And God's going to come in and change your life. So will you guys pray with me all out? Dear Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Please come into my heart. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. I believe that Jesus died on a cross and rose again the third day. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Be the Lord of my life. I want to know you. Write my name in the Lamb's Book of Life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. We're going to close in song. If anybody like individual prayer, we'll be up front to pray for you guys. God bless you guys. Have a great week.